Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We have been uh, talking today about the effect of Hurricane Harvey on gas prices and their lack of effect, frankly, on crude prices. I want to bring in Libby Todos, partner and portfolio manager at Cushing Asset Management, uh, which is based in Dallas and oversees nearly $4 billion of assets. Libby, can we get your sense of why we're seeing uh, the increase in gas prices uh, and certainly that will likely affect the uh, prices that people see at the pump, whereas we're actually seeing crude prices decline. Can you explain this to us? Yeah, I think that uh, we've got a lot of moving parts going on right now. Certainly, the the storm situation is still active, and we're going to probably continue to see more more uh, damage and more refineries maybe come shut in. But on the crude side, um, you're probably not seeing much reaction because what's happening is as, as the crude um, WTI to Brent spread widens, that makes our exports more attractive. And so if there is a potential increase for exports, of course, the, ship, the Houston Ship Channel ha- has to open, um, then that's a little bit of a positive. But uh, reality is that at some point, there is no place for this crude to go if all the refineries are shut down um, and to, you're going to have a problem. Uh, and I would imagine you're going to see some more weakness on, in crude. On the flip side, on the refined products, even though we've seen gasoline futures jump, you have to remember the damage that's being done uh, is also creating demand destruction. Uh, and as we see this continue to unfold, this could be months of, of, of time uh, and years of potential rebuild of uh, the whole area uh, because of this massive historic flooding. And that demand destruction um, is, is going to probably put some pressure on refined products. So uh, gasoline jump now, we're probably going to see that come back in. Well, Libby, I'm wondering if you could give us any estimate in your mind about, let's say, the infrastructure that has been damaged or that is key. For example, I know ExxonMobil has a big refining operation in Baytown. Uh, There are over 700 platforms in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Another statistic, you know, more than a quarter of all natural gas production in the Gulf has been closed down. What are some of the most important things that you're watching as a manager of, uh, you know, over three and a half billion dollars focused mainly on uh, master limited partnerships. Yeah, I, I think that, that, you know, there's 737 platforms in the Gulf. 105 were evacuated for the storms. You're about, probably looking at about a quarter, roughly, give or take, a couple percent of oil and, and gas being sh- production being shut in. But the key thing is going to be uh, the refineries and going forward. And how that impacts, obviously, the upstream companies is if there's no outlet, no place to push the crude oil, um, then they're going to have to slow production. Uh, At the same time, on the midstream side, if there is not a place uh, or volumes 
to be flowing that has potential impact on, on the midstream business. I think the thing that you want to watch right now is, you know, we have about 10 refineries, including that big Exxon Baytown refinery down. There's another huge refinery that's actually bigger than Baytown. It's uh, the Motiva uh, refinery in Port Arthur. If we begin to see you know, there's 17 refineries, a, a third of our capacity on the Gulf Coast. More of those have to shut down because of of the flooding. Um, then that is really going to, to create some issues for uh, some of the upstream and some of the midstream uh, energy companies over the, the short term. Libby, over the longer term, do you think that this disaster will continue to uh, accelerate the move of oil production, of crude production to uh, the northern states, to, to sort of middle America and away from the, the Gulf Coast? No, I don't think you're going to see that because the most prolific basins, certainly uh, on the oil side, are in Texas and, and Oklahoma, um, and obviously being impacted. But the Permian and uh, the Eagleford is the most southern field that is could be impacted by the, the uh, hurricane. But the Permian is further west and north, and of course in Oklahoma, uh, there's there's uh, a lot of oil production in the Scoop Stack area. So so. I don't think that is going to change in the, our prol- most prolific natural gas basin is the Marcellus on the East Coast. So I don't see that changing. I actually think what this does, and we'll, we'll, again, we'll see, we need to balance how much supply uh, impact there is with how much demand destruction uh, there is. And it, if that begins to change our days to cover or our inventory numbers, uh, either way, either higher or lower, that's where we're going to have some, some real impacts. And you can see that positively or, or negatively uh, reflected in the stock prices. I want to thank you for joining us. Libby Tudus is a partner, portfolio manager, Cushing Asset Management. They're based in Dallas, Texas. $3.7 billion of assets uh, under management. I want to thank you for spending time with us today and talking about this topic once again. Uh, the uh, cost of Hurricane Harvey could end up being more than $24 billion when you include the effects of flooding on the labor force, the power grid, transportation, and other elements of the region's energy sector, plus the residential toll. Here to tell us more about the insurance angle is Jonathan Adams, our senior insurance industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Jonathan, I want you to begin, if you can, by just describing the different kinds of insurance because there's flood insurance, wind insurance, hurricane insurance. There's a multitude that goes into this picture. and Just dissect it for us and tell us what's going on. Sure. So standard homeowners insurance uh, will cover hurricane, wind, and many other perils, but it has a specific exclusion for flood. So the standard homeowners policy does not cover uh, this type of event for many of the people, unfortunately, um, in and around Houston. The good news is that there is a national program, national flood insurance program, that allows individuals to buy a separate policy through the NFIP, which is uh, the name for that program, 
and they can uh, have special coverage. I will say that um, auto policies do cover floods, so uh, that particular peril will would be covered um, through your auto policy. But uh, in the case of home, which of course is a, a significant asset, uh, individuals need to go to the NFIP to get coverage. Well, Jonathan, do you have any sense of how many people in Houston had already gone to the NFIP, it's the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, prior to this storm? And if they didn't, what's their uh, what's their recourse now? That's an excellent question. And unfortunately, um, there's not a good figure on individual areas, although if you uh, analysis was done after Hurricane Sandy here in the Northeast, and not surprisingly, um, what's called take-up rates, people who decide to uh, cover themselves with a particular uh, type of uh, protection, uh, are pretty good close to the coastline. So I would expect that individuals uh, close to Galvis, uh, Galveston, Galveston, excuse me, um, and Corpus Christi, uh, w- w- the, the take-up rates would be close to 70 80%. Uh, close to areas in Houston where flooding has been um, uh, an occasional event. Again, pretty good uh, take-up rates. Outside of that area, probably quite low. And on average, uh, I believe the number is close to one in six, or about 20%. So that is quite low. And for those that do not have coverage, uh, really there's very little option. Um, it, 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 you know, the, the, there could be some federal or state support uh, given, but that type of support is not really replacing uh, damaged property. It's more along the lines of uh, interest-free loans or things of that nature that uh, the government tries to put in place in order to allow individuals to get back on their feet. But um, if you don't have any coverage, it it, it really isn't a good picture. I was just reading uh, actually an article talking about how after disasters like this, the uh, percent of people in poverty typically does increase and stays elevated uh, or higher than it was before for a prolonged period of time. And perhaps this is part of the reason why if people lose a lot of the value that they have been storing in the form of their homes. What about the national program itself? How well funded is that? Unfortunately, not well funded. They're $25 billion in debt to the U.S. Treasury. Um, It's a very um, unfortunate and and simple situation where they don't collect enough premium uh, for the risk that they're incurring. Um, When I say they, that's the the NFIP. And there are certainly limitations that Congress puts on the program so that it's difficult for the administrators to put in place a program that is actuarially sound. That program is up for renewal as we speak. Uh, It expires at the end of September. And unfortunately, uh, for the next six years, based upon the bills that are currently being discussed, it's unlikely the program uh, will be able to charge an actually sound, actuarially sound uh, rate. And that will ultimately come back to haunt us because the taxpayers obviously need to uh, cover that $25 billion in debt uh, to the Treasury at some point. Jonathan, I wonder if you just outline for us quickly, uh, in looking at the, the big commercial insurers, the ones that maybe are used by the energy uh, industry, what, what effect might this have on them? So the good news of this storm is that the very high winds 
um, dropped very quickly after landfall. And uh, my channel checks show that um, many of the uh, refiners and other industrial um, entities in that area suffered relatively uh, modest damage. Again, that's that's a relative term, but um, the, the likes of Travelers, which provides a great deal of commercial property coverage, AIG, Chubb, um, will probably not incur the same percentage of loss, given the total loss here, as they would have if um, this was a more traditional wind-driven loss event. So um, those are the names that, that are likely um, participating in that type of coverage. And frankly, right. um, there'll be some claims, but it, it won't be too bad for them. Thank you very much. Jonathan Adams is our senior insurance industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, how about a price check in aisle four? Organic bananas are now 69 cents a pound. That's down from 99 cents. Avocados, they used to cost nearly three bucks each. They're now $1.50. Yes, this is what Amazon does to Whole Foods the Monday after its purchase is complete. And here to tell us more about this strategy is Scott Mushkin, Senior Retail Staples Analyst for Wolf Research. Scott, great to have you with us. Is this just a, we're going to get used to the fact that Amazon deals with competition by just undercutting everybody else on price? I mean, I think that's what we're going to see. I mean, I was in, in the store on Sunday in Sarasota, Florida. I was back there this morning. Um, the price cuts are pretty limited right now, um, but the, the size of the price cuts are pretty significant. So we're finding on average the, the, the pricing when it's being cut is down about 23%. And you hit some of the items, the avocados, uh, eggs, milk, butter, kind of all these staple items that uh, Amazon's moved on. And as they said, this is just the first time they're going to do it. Uh, we're, we're expecting more from them. And I think the most significant thing they announced is they're going to make it part of their Prime program. Um, and you'll get discounts if you're a Prime member at Whole Foods. It's a big deal. It's a game changer. So uh, how big would the discounts be? And would it just be at the physical locations of Whole Foods? Or does this mean that we are soon going to get some kind of online delivery and distribution mechanism from Amazon? I mean, I think we're going to. I think what you're going to see is they're going to integrate. Uh, no one knows yet, by the way, but you know, our guessing is that they're going to integrate pretty readily the Amazon Fresh operations in Whole Foods. Um, it's likely to be pretty powerful uh, as they do that. They already made the announcement that the Whole Foods private label 365 is going through uh, going through Amazon. Uh, so you know, Amazon has got its sights set on this 1.1 trillion dollar consumables market. And unfortunately, you know, for other competitors in the market, if you look at what's going on with the consumer, uh, they're really primed, um, pun intended there, but primed to move some of their some of their purchasing over to Amazon and now Amazon Whole Foods. So, Scott, you know, you were talking about how the price cuts are fairly limited and are really focused on staples, butter, milk, eggs avocados uh, for the millennials out there and, and me. I like them too. But uh, but I want to ask about that strategy. Is that enough to bring people in the door and does it make them uh, more amenable to spending uh, more for the other goods in the store? Or, uh, you know, what's the evidence behind this approach? 
Well, I mean, I actually think you're hitting on something really important. I don't think it's enough. Um, they, they're going to need to do more. Uh, for instance, uh, in, our, in our visit today, Jason's Body Wash, uh, fourteen ninety nine. Uh, you can see that at HEB down in Texas for ten ninety nine every day. So they're going to have to do more. They're going to have to broaden this out. They're going to have to really uh, get rid of that whole paycheck uh, you know, persona on, on Whole Foods. So I think it's a first step. I think the most interesting thing we will see is what they do for the Prime members and what kind of discount you will get uh, being a Prime member and shopping at Whole Foods. I think that's going to be incredibly powerful when they roll that out. Hey, Scott, uh, the competition, Sprouts, Kroger, as well as Walmart, can you give us an idea of whether there are opportunities to invest in those companies or whether you want to stay away and also what they're doing to respond? I think you got to stay away. Uh, the you know, If you look at some of the big markets, you know, for instance, let's talk about Kroger, and we can get kind of micro here. Kroger owns something called Mariano's in Chicago. Uh, Whole Foods has a very uh, large operation in Chicago and hasn't been doing very well. Mariano's is priced under Whole Foods uh, in the Chicago market. That's going to change. They've also, Amazon has rolled out their Amazon Fresh operations recently in Chicago as they integrate the Amazon Fresh and the Whole Foods offering. Very problematic for that Kroger banner there. But if you look at Ahold, which is, uh, you know, owns the Stop and Shop banner, Again, very large Whole Foods markets and markets that have Amazon Fresh. So for those traditional grocers, incredibly problematic what's going on um, because they've done well with the natural and organic, uh, especially Kroger with Simple Truth. So really stay away from the sector. That's what we've been telling people now for about the last 12 to 18 months. If anything, we feel that more strongly about that today than, than we have. It's really going to stay away from the sector until we kind of feel, we kind of figure out where things are going. You know, one question in my mind, Scott, yet last week we were speaking with Shira Ovide, a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, who is noting that Whole Foods had a bigger profit margin than Amazon itself uh, at the time of purchase. How much can Amazon squeeze that profit margin at Whole Foods uh, while still remaining viable and in good shape? I mean, I think they can squeeze it as much as they, I mean, we've seen this with Amazon. Um, they'll squeeze it as much as they can to grab the market share. Uh, so, it, again, I'm repeating the idea of the prime. One of the things I don't think we all considered when Amazon did this, how much volume will Amazon be able to increase as they make it part of their prime membership? Um, that's going to be very powerful. But Amazon has been showing itself to be a company that doesn't necessarily think in short-term profits. Uh, and I don't think they're they're going to drop pricing as much as they can um, to to drive the traffic into the Whole Foods and and also to drive up the usage of Amazon Fresh. So they're playing a long game, and that's what's problematic for companies like a Kroger and an Ahold. Scott, do you foresee a change in the layout of the Whole Foods stores to accommodate things like real-time price changes and getting rid of the normal, you know, stocking the uh, shelves so that you can see everything? It's now going to be changed to maybe just, you know, a few items or even a few days and have it be rotated more quickly. I think you'll see that. I also think you'll see uh, Amazon Locker show up, in a lot, especially in the suburban Whole Foods stores. Uh, I think, you know, Obviously, Amazon's been experimenting with their Amazon Go store out in Seattle. So I think you'll see Amazon try to bring in some technology to help the productivity of those stores and and take down the costs. So I I think over time, you'll see Amazon do a a number of things in conjunction with Whole Foods 
uh, to be able to, again, invest in price. I think they'll invest back into the business, but to make it more efficient. So over time, I do think the stores, particularly the suburban stores, the urban stores are so busy. But those suburban stores, uh, I think you'll see some changes come through. Another change that came through today is that Amazon's Echo was on display at Whole Foods, uh, meaning that they are definitely putting their stamp on the store uh, in many different ways. Scott Mushkin, thank you so much for joining us. Scott Mushkin is a senior retail and staples analyst at Wolf Research. Um, Definitely a new era for Whole Foods, $1.99 a pound for gala apples that are organic uh, will definitely entice some people to the store. All right, let's turn our attention now to a new chief executive for Uber and a perhaps a 20, a 200 rather, $200 million uh, pay bonus. Uh, here to tell us more is Mandeep Singh. He is our technology analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Mandeep, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming into the studio. Dara Khosro Shahi uh, is tapped to be the new chief executive, formerly of Expedia, formerly of Barry Diller, Allen & Company, Brown University. What can you tell me about the challenges that Dara faces? So clearly, he is a very qualified candidate. He has proven himself at Expedia, you know, scaled Expedia from a small online travel agent vendor to the largest OTA vendor by bookings. And I think what he'll find is he can repeat the same playbook over here because when you think about Uber, there's a lot of similarity with online travel companies. You know, Uber also deals with price-conscious customers. It has the same kind of network effects as a, an online travel company does. It has to overcome regulatory hurdles, which online travel vendors did as well. So there's a lot of similarity. And, and I think, I feel personally, Uber is where uh, OTA vendors like Expedia and Priceline were 10 years back. Well, so he can repeat that playbook. Where did he come from in the uh, running for the new Uber CEO? Because I heard a lot of names to be the potential uh, new chief executive here, including Meg Whitman. Uh, I did not hear his until this weekend. I was as surprised as you were, Lisa. He definitely was not in the running, or at least no one heard about him up until Sunday, where Meg Whitman, it seems that the board couldn't agree. So that's the thing about Uber, is the board is very small. And it's divided into two parts. One pro uh, co-founder, Travis Kalanick, the other one is not supportive of him. And I think it it came to a point where uh, Dara was the least offensive choice, somebody who could pacify, you know, both the sides. And, wow, that's that's yeah. the least offensive. I don't think of uh, Jeffrey Immelt and uh, Meg Whitman necessarily as being <laughs> offensive, but whatever it is that uh, that flows your boat. I mean, I guess that uh, the other question is a political question, and uh, you know, we know that uh, that Uber has come under fire for some controversial political leanings, and Dara comes in and has been an outspoken uh, opponent of President Trump. Does that matter at all to Uber? I think it does because Uber is a global company. Think about it. It's operating in, you know, worldwide, 83 uh, countries. And 
as a global company, you can't be very narrow in your views. So the CEO really sets the bar. And, and I think uh, it's a good thing for Uber to have such a CEO who's vocal about these kind of things. And, and really, I think uh, is setting up a good precedent if, if he carries on that way. One of the issues, I believe, at uh, Uber right now has to do with the lawsuit that has been filed by Benchmark about Travis Kalanick having a hand in appointment of two additional board members. Does this make it easier to solve this? Or, I mean, is is this, we just kind of have to wait and see what, what Benchmark thinks of the new uh, CEO? Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. The board uh, structure, like I said, is very complex. But based on how he has run Expedia, my gut feeling is he's going to diversify the board. He's going to add people who have experience running billion-dollar-plus companies. This board is very new right now. Uh, five appointees are new. You know They've been uh, at Uber for less than one year. So he may want to add uh, people who have that experience running a multinational, multibillion-dollar company. And, and I think he also needs a CFO. Right? That's the other vacuum that, uh, that is there in the company. There is no CEO. There is no CFO. So maybe one of those two guys could be on the board as well. Um, the price tag for this new chief executive officer is quite large, right? Um, again, it's a tough question because uh, obviously he had a lot of options uh, uh, in Expedia. So uh, to get a guy like that who has been running the company successfully for 12 years, yes, you got to pay up. But that's not a problem for Uber. Uber has all that uh, you know, cash and, and they can attract uh, any candidate. So it's really about getting the right one. So $200 million, which is the currently reported fee that they'll have to pay uh, their new chief executive to leave Expedia. That's a drop in the bucket for them? I mean, it's not a drop, but they can, you know, vest those options. They can uh, create a package for him that kind of vests over time. And, and uh, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's not really a big deal. Yeah, right. just, I was just going to say, I'm just taking a look at the Bloomberg uh, at the ca- at the total compensation, cash, non-cash, and so on. Thirty-one point six million dollars uh, for Adara uh, Khosrow Shahi at Expedia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PNL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.